0: What's up everyone and welcome to The Corporate Bartender. Today's show is just excellent. We are jazzed to have James McKim on the program. If you don't know James, count your lucky stars that you're here. He's the founder and managing partner at Organizational Ignition, where he and his team help organizations ignite efficiency through aligning people, processes, and technology. He's a speaker, coach, change manager, presenter, and is the author of The Diversity Factor, Igniting Superior Organizational Performance. Today, we're talking about DEIB as it relates to measurable organizational performance. This is bottom line stuff here, folks. Profitability, innovation, decision making, and engagement. And I think you're going to dig it. So buckle up, TC beers, grab your favorite cocktail, and let's get right on into it with James McKim on today's TC
1: Welcome to Sky Team's The Corporate Bartender, where we gather some of the best HR and people leaders to discuss what's happening on the people side
0: of business. Now pull up a stool, belly up to the bar, and join us for The Corporate Bartender. Let's get get going, everybody. It is Wednesday. It's your favorite day in mine. It's Corporate Bartender Day. It is the 1st of June. So we are almost halfway through twenty twenty two I don't know about you, but I still have a hard time thinking that twenty twenty one is completed, and it's all still twenty twenty to me for some reason. I don't know why mm-hmm. but here we are uh for the one hundred and thirty fourth time and I think Lindsay Hersey's been here one hundred and thirty four times, which is pretty <laughs> pretty darn awesome today's today's gonna be a fun day um we've uh we've got We've got a guest, we've got James McKim. Say hello to everybody, James. Hello, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) James is the author of The Diversity Factor, Igniting Superior, Superior Organizational Performance. He's the founder and managing partner at Organizational Ignition, where he and his team help organizations ignite efficiency through aligning people, processes, and technology. He's a speaker, he's a coach, he's a change manager, he's a conference presenter and uh, diversity is his jam. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today and sort of round out our little mini series on DEIB. What I love about about this one is that it's a direct correlation to organizational performance. Um, So want to get into that. So let's welcome James, give him a big TCB welcome everybody. (laughs) Just a reminder, we've got another guest coming up on the 22nd of June, the author of the revelation conversation, inspire greater employee engagement by connecting to purpose. So that should be fun too. And a little reminder next week, we will be TCB free because Ruby and I are going to Mexico. That's right. That's right. Ruby and me and Lori and her husband, Rick, are going to a a music festival down at uh, Rocky Point, Puerto Penasco, Mexico. It's a bucket list item for, I think, all of us. And we're super stoked. So uh, Wednesday uh, is travel out day for me and Lori. So we will not be here next week, but we will be back with with hangovers and sunburns the week after that. Accurate. So today's news, you can use item, um, this I posted out on the network the other day. Um, you know, we we've talked about return to work and until we can't anymore. And what I thought was interesting about this one is, you know, now that we're sort of neck deep in it, it's, it's starting to change again. Right. You know, all of these best laid plans that organizations had about we're going to do three days in and two days out. And that's the golden ratio. And that's what everybody's going to live by. Well, turns out that that's not what everybody's into. Uh, The headline that pointed me to this article was we reopened offices and nobody wants to come back. So what do we do now? (laughs) And there is a lot of interesting things in there about, um just creative ideas that companies are doing to make coming into the office feel worthwhile. Um, uh, down to executives saying, "If you don't have a reason to be here, don't bother." Right? It's don't don't come here to sit in your cube and be on Zoom meetings all day. <laughs> right? Um, so conference rooms are getting a reboot. They're they're getting you know more cozy, uh, couchy hangout space re-reboots. Um, it was interesting um, separation anxiety was the thing that came out of some of this research, not people being uh, anxious about not being around other people, people being separated from their dogs and their pets because <laughs> mm-hmm. they've been with them 24 seven for so long. It reminded me of that, of that cartoon that came out uh, about, I don't know, three or three or four months into the pandemic where it was two, sort of parallel news articles, one written by dogs and one written by cats. And the one written by dogs was like, we should keep it this way forever, dogs. And then the other one was they should go back to work yesterday, cats, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> so that separation anxiety, you know, it's been, it, that's been an interesting thing, um the the notion of of retirement, the people that have jumped into it and then jumped back out of it. Um people that have have left companies and come back i was i was talking with a client just the other day about the number of return employees that they're having people that left during the quote great resignation um you know so in the last you know six to 12 months that are already coming back that's interesting um inflation driving people's willingness to want to come back to the office You know it was it was one thing to devote three hours and thirty dollars a week to commuting to work and (laughs) you know three hours a day and a hundred dollars a week is a whole different ball game right so all of those things it's an interesting read it's not it's not very long but it's it's an interesting one because it's got a bunch of of stories from companies that have tried things that didn't work out. Right. You know, like Apple, which was a big surprise made a big push that everybody needed to be in three days a week. And they're already backed off that, right. Facebook did the same thing or Meta rather did the same thing. Um, and then other companies like BlackRock, you know, a private equity firm, they're just like, you know, what, do what you need to do. We'll figure it out. And Goldman Sachs is really just harping on the five days a week, eight to five, sorry, nine, nine to five. It's New York. Um, Butts in seats, right? And it's it's not going over well. So definitely worth the four or five minutes it takes to read through it. Um, if it helps you as you're assessing your own return to work struggles, I think every client I've talked to has has they've written a plan, they've put it in place, and it hasn't worked out the way they wanted it to. You know, Ruby and I were with a client in Tucson, Arizona last week, and they have this awesome building that will house about, I don't know, 150, 200 people. And there were how many people in the building when we were there?
2: Like 20, maybe.
0: Maybe. Right. And that
2: feels like a suck of energy too. It's so quiet. It's so Mm. quiet. It doesn't feel fun to be there.
0: Right. Even though the the building was cool and the rooms had fun Mm -hmm. amenities and there's a bar in the middle of the first floor with beer taps and snacks and (laughs) yeah. but. But, but it was definitely meant for a lot more people.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Definitely meant for a lot more people. Hey, Morag. <laughs> Good to see you.
2: Eric, did you see the article that Debbie just posted on the network?
0: I did about, not. I saw something it, pop in. What was it?
2: It was about um, Tesla and yeah. and SpaceX and Elon Musk saying, you guys are coming back to the office or you all are coming back to the office for 40 hours a week or you can leave. Whoa. Like yeah, very, I saw that firm. too. Yeah, it, yeah. Let me. I'll go grab the link. Wow. Well, he basically yeah. said, "If the factory workers have to be there, so do you." Interesting. Yeah.
0: Hope that works out for you, Elon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if I were a betting person, I don't know that I'd put my money on that play, but okay.
2: Yeah, it was pretty. It's pretty harsh. Um, but that's but, that's what he
0: does, though, right? He rolls yeah. the big dice. He doesn't, yep. he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't dance around the thing. He just says what he wants. And if it doesn't work out, he'll make a different decision. That's just, Mm -hmm. that's kind of his style, which I can appreciate. um, But you know, just in in watching the whole acquisition of Twitter unfold, that's not going super smooth either. So he's got, he's got a lot of curves in the road to navigate. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get on into our conversation with James James McKim, you heard about it at the beginning of the show. He's the author of this book here, The Diversity Factor Igniting Superior Organizational Performance. And the big idea here is that there's a lot of research out that confirm that diverse organizations outperform their peers who are not diverse across a wide range of key performance metrics, like profitability and innovation and decision-making. Employee engagement is a big one. So we're going to get into that. Um, you know, but a lot of company leaders are reluctant to work on DEI initiatives. We've been talking about it a great deal and I was telling James in the pre-show that as HR, OD and learning and development people, we we jump on the things that we're supposed to do and there's a lot of them, these initiatives, big societal initiatives and we we wrestle with, are we doing this effectively? Are we Are we doing the right stuff? Are we just ticking boxes because someone told us we needed to tick boxes? Where can we really get hard business results in initiatives like this? And that's one of the things that that really excited me about this book uh, and about having James on the show was this direct connection between diversity and organizational performance. So let's give him a little round of applause. James, welcome. excellent so james tell us a little bit about you and your journey when you were a little kid did you want to be a deib expert with a with a hot book on the topic
3: (laughs) never imagined never imagined that would happen no i started off when i was in high school uh, my high school got and this was back in the 70s um got its first computer and i just fell in love so i was uh, was in the second computer class that the school had, and I could spend hours and hours and hours on the computer, and the time would just fly by, and I wouldn't even know it. So um, I went on to Dartmouth College and got my uh, bachelor's in computer science. Um, along the way, I also got my bachelor's in philosophy.
0: Well, that's competing ends of the spectrum. <laughs> it's it one very it's, defined thing. And one thing about the definition of everything. Oh, uh, we've got Laura's educated <laughs> basic.
3: So, um,
0: most people say that until
3: I make the connection, I'll say one word and you will immediately get how they're connected. Okay. Uh, logic. Fair. <laughs> right. Now that, I say that, fair. but that's not why I liked both of them. And I, I like to say I can explain what a bit and a byte is, and I can theorize to its existence.
0: Nah, I love it. I love it. So you, you did the computer science first.
3: I did the computer science first, and then I got a bachelor's in, in a philosophy, and I went to work um, at a small software development house right out of college. Okay. Uh, did that for a few years and then uh, moved over to Digital Equipment Corporation, which um, is, uh, was uh, the second largest computer company in the world, second to IBM, uh, for a great number of years. Um, there was the great right-sizing, they tell you to call it right-sizing, not right. <laughs> that happened in the 90s, and I left and started my first uh, consulting practice. Um, focused on uh, helping companies develop their IT strategic plans and do their IT strategic planning. Um, I left that after about 10 years and realized, well, I'm doing this consulting on how to do strategic planning for IT, but I've never really led the practice myself. (laughs) So uh, I went to work for Dean Kamen and led the IT group at first, the robotics competition uh, nonprofit, his foundation. Um, and did that for a number of years. And then um, some friends of mine who were at HP uh, in the learning and development space. What? Uh, asked me to join uh, them because I, when I was at DEC, I, I d- did both technical stuff and I did some uh, training and development on the internals of some of Digital's products. So I had those kinds of, of experiences and skills as well. So I went to HP. Uh, and worked in the learning and development department for uh, nine years uh, and uh, left there as chief of staff for the technical training division globally. Um, And uh, when I left there, um, before that, I I also dabbled in creating a a company that uh, developed a a, a patented uh, mechanism for asset tracking. So you can put this device on any asset and track it anywhere around the world.
0: This is like pre-RFID?
3: This is pre-RFID. So we started off with a box that was shoe box size as what you would track with. Uh, And um, we shrunk that down to uh, cigarette box size. But we were so early in this stage of development that we actually used pager technology
0: to do. This. <laughs> you know, you said two two things in there that date you: cigarette box and pager. <laughs> yes,
3: yes, indeed. Um, so I've got that startup experience, and I, I, I'm uh, I'm a, an Episcopalian, so I've been actually during this time kind of got dragged into doing work on racial reconciliation. Mm. Uh, the Uh, Bishop of New Hampshire kind of asked me to lead the uh, anti-racism task force for the the diocese. Uh, And when your bishop asks you to do something, you kind of... You do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So I was doing that all along uh, with uh, being in the the corporate world. And after I left HP, um, which was in 2019... Uh, I started off wanting to just do strategic consulting, really management strategic consulting, because I'd been around enough that I had some expertise in that and a desire to do that. Uh, And then uh, George Floyd was murdered. And Breonna Taylor, and and the world just flipped, which was similar to the flip in 1964- Right. uh, with, With what happened then, but it, it's, a, it's a bit different because we have technology that was in the hands of the woman who filmed the George right. Floyd uh, murder. Um, so this time, I think it's a little bit different. But for me, being in the corporate world all this time, I started thinking about you know, what, what's missing out of this equation? what's what what are we not talking about mm-hmm. uh, and i already had this idea to create a book called diversity good or bad for an individual mm. but i started thinking well people are you even allowed to bad. say
0: that good or bad i mean diversity is good that's what we're told right well that's what we're told but there are so many people as you know who think diversity
3: we don't we don't have it we don't need it right so I had this idea about individuals and there were books around, but I looked and went, well, where are the books around diversity for organizations? Mm-hmm. And there really weren't too many and any that there existed focused on organizational performance from the perspective of how do we make social justice reason for doing this?
0: Oh, gotcha. Gotcha.
3: Right. I didn't really see anybody talking about how do we do this for the reasons that it helps with organizational performance overall. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, so many people, and we, we talk about this in the HR world. So many people, when they think of organizational performance, think of short-term financial profitability.
0: (laughs) Right. 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 Just till, just till the next earnings release.
3: Till the next earnings release. If you're a a publicly traded company, you've got to keep that image up for, for the market. Right. But, my experience was that there's so much more to organizational performance that I thought we're missing by focusing just on financial performance.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So in reading I ran across um Universalia's work in creating what they call the institutional and organizational assessment model. And their model is a framework and they say that organizational performance is the balance of efficiency, effectiveness, relevance, and financial viability.
0: Ooh, I like that.
3: And that really resonated with me because it was much more than just the, the short-term financial profitability that we, we kind of focus on, where leaders really focus on. Um, and I, other research and looking at the McKinsey studies and the PwC studies that have the data that backs up that it's more than just the financial aspects. Although um, those studies do focus on the financial viability piece and don't talk so much about the relevance and the effectiveness and, and the efficiency piece. And that's why I thought, well, no one's really written about this. I might as well. Right. And, and that's that's why a great number of the much of the book is on those aspects other than the financial, although we talk about the financial viability piece as well. Um, so that's kind of where I got to where I am.
0: That's, that's awesome. I I love that. I I love this notion of efficiency, effectiveness, relevance, and financial viability. Um, the one that popped out for me as you were talking about it is is relevance. What does that term mean in this model?
3: Yeah. So in this model, I I looked at relevance and there's a a great, and there's a Venn diagram in the book that shows this, um, that talks about what is relevance. Mm -hmm. What are the components of relevance? And it boils down to um, the perception of the users, the perception of the people in the organization who are developing the products and services, uh, and the perception of the society in general Mm -hmm. about what you're doing. So when you put those three things together, relevance in in terms of diversity is... um, Are you able to bring different perspectives to the table that will help make sure that your products are going to be relevant to as broad a customer base or client base as possible? Are you operating in such a way that you attract diverse people into your organization so you'll get those diverse perspectives? Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And then, how are you looking in society? Are you being seen as being open and honest and transparent? are you being seen as closed-minded and what comes to mind there for me is we have the the um, religious wars between those who are okay with the Apple ecosystem that is closed mm-hmm. versus being part of the open systems mantra that's uh, that's uh, Android and Linux and and all of that um so which which ecosystem do you want to be part of and which uh, which is relevant to you where you are, you feel comfortable being
0: That's so funny because it's, it's funny. It, it, it makes me think about, I'm trying to think about what's popping into my head in the frame that you just presented it right as this diversity frame, because when I think about it as the Apple closed system, that's the efficient one, right? Versus the Android open system. That's full of, of bloat and, and hackability, right? The trade-offs between those two things, right? You, you talked in the book about, Having to question some long-standing assumptions and and myths and things that that we think about that we that that are part of our operating system. Yes. So your question right there made me do that. Just thinking about Apple versus Android. What are the other myths, uh, assumptions, things that we've carried along with us in our journey that we need to make sure that we're we're questioning here? So um, I
3: think. One of the myths that we have to really question is diversity is just about race, Mm. gender, and it's about so much more than that. Um, And I love to to use uh, Marilyn Loden's diversity wheel notion of diversity is really about characteristics of our personalities.
0: Ooh, I like that.
3: And when we think of characteristics of our personalities, we think of Race, yes. Gender, yes. Age, um, we think of, and she calls those few uh, primary characteristics that don't change much over, if at all, over our lifetimes, right? So those primary characteristics, but then the secondary characteristics, those characteristics that do change over our lifetimes, but still make up our personalities. So where are we physically located mm-hmm. with the art um, what are our habits? What are personal habits? What are our, what's our religion? Uh, how much yeah. do we make? Like? What's our socioeconomic status? Um, and so the myth that diversity is all about race or all about gender is myth. one of those I think we need to really re-examine because we have diversity everywhere we go, right? Um, even though I, I live in new hampshire and we are 87 percent white state and there are people here who say well there's no diversity here and i say well it depends on your definition of diversity right. there may not be a lot of racial diversity across the state but we certainly have um, a equal balance of male versus female yeah right uh, we certainly have people who are skilled at many different things, and we have uh, different socioeconomic status all over the state.
0: Right? In New Hampshire, doesn't have a lot of city people, a lot of country people.
3: A lot of country people. We are. We are. Even Manchester is considered by the USDA as a rural area.
0: Really, that's the biggest city. We discussed that city. in the pre-show. Yeah, so we discussed
3: <laughs> the pre-show. Manchester at one hundred and ten thousand people is the largest city in the state of New Hampshire. Right. Um, so that's one myth that, that, uh, that diversity is really just about, about race. I think another myth that we really need to look at is that um, if we focus on diversity, we have to take our eye off the ball of other things that are more important. And I think diversity and thinking about diversity and having diverse people is actually one of the most critically important things that we can, can look at. and it, it, and not just having diversity, but having equitable inclusion of diversity because diversity by itself, and it's maybe even another myth, myth, people say, well, we need to have a diverse organization. We need to have a lot of diversity. Mm -hmm. Having diversity by itself is a prerequisite to having good organizational performance, but you also have to have equitable inclusion. If you don't have equitable inclusion, then you could get, confusion. You could get miscommunication, right? If people aren't, um, organized in such a way that the diversity can be leveraged and harnessed, then you're, you have to cause more harm than good.
0: Wow. That's a lot to unpack there. I mean, it's, it's funny, right? I mean, as open-minded and as, as, as forward thinking, as we like to think we are, you know, we're humans are creatures of pattern and we lean on those patterns because they have been successful in the past. So I, I love thinking about these frameworks in that regard, James, that's, that's, that's awesome. Um, when we get to the the sort of central question, right? I mean, we've seen the research, you mentioned the McKinsey research and the PwC research that Diverse organizations outperform non-diverse organizations in in these certain key metrics. Um, When when you were coming up with this concept, what does DEI have to do with organizational performance? And why is that a thing?
3: It's a thing because the more perspectives you have at the table, the better your decisions are going to be made. Be to make. Um, There's research that says diverse organizations are 87% more likely to make better decisions.
0: That's a big deal. That's not, that's not a, there's no laughing matter metric. 87%. It's
3: it's a huge deal that, that organizations aren't aware of. Um, Diversity impacts and the different perspectives um, allow you to see what. Customers want in diverse markets. So, if you ask what your market is today, as an as an organization, your market is probably going to be people like you <laughs> right. in, in your organization, because yeah. you don't have the you may not have the different perspectives to know that in this particular market segment, these are the things that they want. Right. These are the things that they will pay extra for which you yeah. may not already have designed into your product or service.
0: I mean it, it's it's similar to the hiring managers conundrum, right? We tend to hire people that look and but sound like us. Like us. That's yeah.
3: right. Affinity bias. Yes. We we all have affinity bias. We're we're as as a human species, we are tribal. You know? Right. Right. So affinity bias, confirmation bias, or whole, whole I I've been doing research I was amazed that there are over 400 biases that have been identified.
0: Wow. How over do we even keep track of all that, James? <laughs> well,
3: we, we don't. Um, and they, they tend to be in three categories um, that the research has shown. They're, they're in uh, decision-making, um, in um, socializing, and in memory. Three Ooh. categories of biases. right? Um, and it, it's just, it's amazing that, uh, dissect those and figure out how to get over them and I was looking at your, your the, the episode with with DDS and you're talking about biases and and you asked them how do you get over them yeah you know there there are nine techniques for debiasing yourself Wow so yeah working through those nine uh, is is what many organizations should be uh, helping um, everyone in the organization do figuring out what's the best technique uh for everybody to overcome bias is one of those barriers to achieving organizational performance
0: it's crazy right you think 400 biases nine techniques to debias yourself that's a lot of work um and you know we talked about this a little bit in the pre-show and we've talked about it in the dds episode and with uh with um uh ray errata you know there as as hr good hr people we we know this is the thing that we we need to be paying attention to, um, and it's so big and it's so broad. How how do we separate the wheat from the chaff and in and, and focus on the things that really matter that are going to bring us those organizational performance returns, financial viability, maybe notwithstanding. But right. I was I was expressly interested in in some of your your comments on engagement, the statistically significant comments around engagement. How do we as good HR people figure out what to focus on? Cause it's a lot.
3: So I, I my sense is we start with, it's so ironic to me that. Um, a lot of what we talk about for diversity, equity and inclusion and belonging is really just good leadership. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's, it's,
0: it's, it's the don't be a jerk rule. <laughs>
3: it's the don't be a jerk rule. It's be kind. As we talked about in the other show. Uh, it's, be inclusive, yeah. it's understand your own limitations. Uh, Jennifer Brown in her book, how to become uh, an inclusive leader has this great uh, leadership development continual. And she talks about, we all need to start with awareness as you talked about in the other shows, of being aware that uh, diversity is an issue and it, it's in an organization as a leader, you have to do more than just be compliant because so many organizations only deal with diversity because the EEOC rules, right. they say you must treat people fairly. fairly. But once you come to an awareness and understanding that there's a benefit to diversity, equity, and inclusion that leads to belonging, uh, then you move into what, uh, what Jennifer calls the um, active stage,
4: Mm-hmm.
3: where you're learning, you you know you need to learn more, and you want to apply that. You want to be an ally. You want to support people in being their best. Because it's not about how much you know as a leader.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It's about how you motivate others to be their best. Right. Um, and once you do that, once you start to become an ally and become active, then you can become an advocate. Mm. An advocate, is someone who looks for the barriers that are preventing people from being as successful as they can be.
4: right?
3: Uh, and that advocacy piece is so important. So I think, first of all, we need to look at our leaders and say, how do we develop our leaders so that they are inclusive leaders, that they understand the difference between equity and, and uh, equality, that we need mm-hmm. to treat people equitably, meet them where they are with whatever skills and strengths they have right. and help them to shore up their weaknesses. So working with leaders, I think is key. I think also um, helping management understand that as we've been talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion is good for the organizational performance not just for the social justice reasons. Right. One of the top four reasons why diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts fail is because of lack of commitment from leadership Mm -hmm. to set the tone that says we will concentrate on this, this will be a priority because it's going to help us from an organizational performance perspective.
0: It's a big deal. <laughs> you you used a couple of words in there, and I, I want to just ask a question about vocabulary because I know we we struggle with making sure that we're saying the right things and using the correct terminology. And you use the word ally, and we we've talked about allyship here in this community before. Um, and you use the word advocacy. What is the difference between allyship and advocacy?
3: Sure. So, and al- allyship is. Um, On an interpersonal basis. Allyship is about-
0: uh, So like one-to-one.
3: One-on-one, coming alongside someone and helping them to get through whatever it is that they're trying to get through. Got it. Advocacy is looking systemically. Oh. For the most part, you can't advocate for an individual as well, Mm -hmm. but in, in Jennifer Brown's sense, advocacy is looking at systems. And seeing where systems should be changed to prevent discrimination from happening, to, to be more inclusive.
0: Thank you, thank you for that. I love that. That's super, super helpful. Um, when you talk about DEI and its relationship to organizational performance, in in your book, you you use Kurt Howell's organizational performance system framework. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and and how that came into your work?
3: So I, I'm big on organizational performance. I said, I said I work on strategic planning and I, I ran across that title just thinking about organizational performance. And I, I, I got which the, is or, the
0: title of his book, organizational performance,
3: organizational performance, the 21st century key to, to success is uh, the title of the book. Um, and so what he talks about is uh, the organizational performance system which is comprised of three different levels. The first level is um, really about um, how your organization interacts with its clients, with its customers. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it looks at who are the stakeholders, um, who are the um, people for whom your products or service Are being developed, designed, right? So, um, with that's the the highest level uh, in that organizational performance system. It looks at, um, he calls it the stakeholder value delivery level, uh, looking at value propositions and uh, how your products and services are being offered.
0: See, listen, HR people, those are all words that CEOs love. Value proposition, stakeholder. Yeah, yeah
3: absolutely. <laughs> and this is so I think important for us as HR professionals. We need to be using the language of our leadership.
0: Yes, hundred uh, percent. Right, because as soon as
3: we get into HR wonk speak, goes right over their head. They're out. <laughs> They're out. They're out. Right, and you're likely to be out. Right. If you're if you're not using that language. So the the second layer that he talks about, he calls the technical and the core competencies. And that's where you get into more of the process stuff. So um, looking at product development or service development, looking at how products are manufactured, uh, looking at how sales and marketing is done, um, looking at how customer service is done, those processes that lead to
0: thinking about efficiency. Like like in a a Peter Drucker sense of the word? Peter
3: Drucker sense of the word, yeah. Got it. Yeah. So, and I also relate, we talk about organizational performance being about efficiency, effectiveness, relevance, and financial viability. So that first layer where we're talking about stakeholder value is related to effectiveness and relevance. The second layer where we're talking about technical core competencies and processes and procedures speaks to efficiency. In the organization, right? and then the third level, the kind of underlying level, is what he calls the intangibles, and this is what he calls the organizational performance drivers. So there are things like uh, governance. How is the organization being governed? Uh, like how are we managing human capital? Uh, like how are we looking at high performance? And I really love uh, Price Coopers has this great graphic that I use in the book that. Um, looks at what is high performance. It's about trust. It's about uh, winning attitude. It's about several different uh, components. Uh, so these organizational performance drivers that he talks about are about uh, driving efficiencies and driving financial viability. So putting all those together, that's the organizational performance system. Looking at those processes, procedures, and attitudes, and uh, from that framework perspective. Um, so the, the next question comes, so how does diversity, equity, and inclusion play into that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, and I I did a, uh, when I wrote the book, um, I said, well, you know, I'm using the term perspective a lot. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me do a word, Ken. Kind of, now I don't remember how many times I, I used the word perspective, but it's more than any other word in the book. <laughs> and it's all about, Different perspectives at each of those levels get you best performance. So mm-hmm. different perspectives about who your audience is and what your audience wants gives you a richer view of your audience and gives you a broader audience, as we talked yeah, about yeah. before. Right? Um, having more perspectives at the table when you're looking at and thinking about efficiency gives you more innovative ideas and better decision as we talked about, 87% mm-hmm. better decisions about ideas, different perspectives, different perspectives in how governance is done, different perspectives in how um, um, human capital is looked at, different perspectives in how, uh, performance, uh, how high-performing teams are looked at. It's that difference in perspective that permeates all of those systems. To bring higher performance.
0: I love that. I love that. And I wanna I wanna open it up to questions and give folks a chance to ask you question. Um, but but I wanted to make reference to you have a, a cartoon in the book that just made me giggle.
3: Which one? I tried to put a few in to make it. Yeah, so the one
0: the one that, that that really kind of resonated for me was it has two people and they're standing here in a in you know, a very stereotypical office environment and uh the quote underneath the cartoon says our goal is to establish language that is gender neutral ethnic neutral and age neutral while celebrating our spirit of diversity right (laughs) (laughs) and you know we talked about this a few weeks ago we had a pretty candid conversation um with with some some leaders of of color around the language that we use and and you know, as HR people, we're always trying to say the right thing, which is why, and I gave James the heads up that sometimes we get a little, we get a little blue in this room because we don't have any other venue in <laughs> which to do this. Um, cause we're always trying to say the right thing. We want to make sure that we're, we're, we're towing the line, um, with regard to, to language. And this cartoon really resonated with me because that's in a nutshell HR's dilemma with with DE and IB, right? Because we're supposed to be celebrating the thing that we're not really allowed to talk about using language that directs, uh, you know, attention to any one specific thing.
3: Right. Yeah. And, and what what I've come to really um, try to help people grasp is, first of all, we're humans. Right. <laughs> we're going to make mistakes. Just, uh, just accept that. At the at the get-go right um and we need to create environments where it's okay to make yes. mistakes so we learn from our mistakes yes right? so we have to be okay with making mistakes and I think there's so many people who don't want anyone to make a mistake
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah it stifles us it yeah. just stifles us it stifles creativity and, and, it, and it makes us feel like we don't belong you know. C.E. Garcia said there are five aspects, five components of belonging, um, where you're valued as an individual, Mm -hmm. where you uh, can see people who look like you, Mm -hmm. where you um, have something in common with others, where you have a role or responsibility, uh, and where you feel like you can be your authentic self. Love it
0: right love it morag had a question on that point what's your question there Morag? well
5: this is where it makes my head explode because you've got 190 (laughs) what am i trying to belong to as an english woman in america and we talk about if i get making our language vanilla even that well vanilla is invariably white ice cream is that wrong but how do you dilute language when you and i don't even speak the same language we overlap a bit and there are innumerable other foreign languages and cultures whose 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 definition of help because any of that <laughs> help, <heart-started yeah. laughs> thoughts, so, james help
3: this is this is great and and uh, uh, people ask me because one of my one of the, the hats I wear is I'm President of the Manchester branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. So I'm usually pegged as, well, what do black people think? And I have to say, well, I can tell you what I've heard, but <laughs> yeah. I'm only one person. Yeah, And if I speak, I, I speak from my personal experience. I can say what I think. I, I happen to know that I, people other think people think differently than I do. So for me, it's all about relationships. Ooh,
4: you're
5: speaking person, my language now, James, <laughs> definitely.
3: Every person has a different take. Every person has a different set of experiences that make up who they are and how they think. So you can speak about using a certain language, but... It's great to preface, and I do this workshop called How to Have Difficult Conversations. And a colleague of mine, Dr. Dottie Morris, uh, says that for conversations, we really need to set the table to have a good productive conversation. Mm. Setting the table is all about understanding who this other person is we're talking with, what they're, where they're coming from, and what language they use you shouldn't have to guess what the right words are to say to this person to make this person understand you. you. You're not in their shoes. You can't know what language to use. You can only use the language that you have. But if you preface it with this relationship that lets the other person know that you're trying to use the right words, but you're going to mess up because you're human. Right. right? Give yourself a break. Uh, be patient with yourself and be patient with others is one of the, the conversational norms I like to use. Um, and just, just be upfront and honest and say, I'm going to say something. I may mess it up. Please, excuse me. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Back to the DDS conversation you had yeah. you a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I may get it wrong. I'm trying. I, my intention is good. I'm going to take responsibility for my impact. Right? I may I may have to say, oops, or you yeah. may say, Ouch. That something didn't land on you right, um,
0: but I'm trying. Help me, help me to communicate better. Right? Yeah, so many good points in there, right? And, and to your to your comment, James, it reminded me as you were talking of when Ruby asked DDS a question, and she made reference to, made a reference to both genders.
4: Right,
0: right, <laughs> and they said. Ruby, can I can I offer you some feedback? And, and Ruby said, Well, yes, DDS, yes, you can. Thank be you. Great. <laughs>
3: yep, yep. Yeah, the continuum. Uh, you know, there are four aspects of gender. Biology is only one of them. Uh, gender identification, gender expression, and then sexual orientation.
5: It right. goes back to what you said earlier on, James. Diversity has never been the issue diversity whichever way you want to slice it has always been there it's that sense of belonging and inclusion yes that we've yes. we've mastered mistrusted in the <laughs> I, years of excluding people well, based on arbitrary things
0: yeah and it, it makes me think about you know because i i'm of a certain age and when i was coming up in hr um you know that was when all the eeoc things started to happen and You had to do your your affirmative action planning, Mm -hmm. right? And counting things doesn't doesn't speak to inclusion or belonging in any way whatsoever, right? right. That's right. Right. So yeah, it's a complex beast. Lori, you got your hand up.
2: Yes. In the uh, spirit of, yes, we get to uh, be real as it were. Um, I had a very a new experience for me on Sunday. And, uh, I have to say it, it was enlightening, but it was also very uncomfortable. So, um, and not saying as that, they
0: usually are, it was enlightening one.
2: discomfort helps us learn, but in any event, um, as an in-flight support coach, I have to train people and I'm kind of like on the practicum side. So they get on the plane and Thumbs up, thumbs down. We have to evaluate them. And anyway, um, I was very busy over the whole weekend because somebody called off sick and I was a last minute stand in on it for a couple of flights. But in any event, um, the last <laughs> Sunday I had um, Jonathan and uh, Jonathan showed up as Samantha and it threw me for a real loop. Um you know we have our picture ids we have our our official paperwork everything and again usually i have interactions with my my people before they get on the plane and because this was a last minute situation i didn't have that usual interaction and so again it kind of threw me off i'm expecting jonathan and it's samantha samantha was very gracious very sweet no issues whatsoever but i really I was the only person on my crew that knew it was Jonathan. I'll be very honest mm. with you. I'm and I never said a word to anybody. Um, but I just, you know, the pronouns. I'm just like, I got uh, so yep, yep.
4: <laughs>
2: I gotta really watch myself because I did not want to offend her at all. And it, but it was just I was caught off guard. And like I said, usually I can at least kind of prepare myself, you know, not that this is, we, we've had one other transgender person join our company. It was a few years ago. Um, so again, th- this is a new thing and it's, and it's coming up and yeah, I'm, I'm in my fifties and this is a new thing. So, um, nonetheless, I would have to say, um, I've had interactions with her since the training. Cause I, I'm a coach and, um, I think everything went well. I think my crew was great. One of my <laughs> crewmates did say he at one point, <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't think anybody heard <laughs> It's just like, so it, again, that discomfort, that new, that newness, I think is, is what kind of threw me off, but yet at the same point in time, we don't want to offend. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And we certainly want to be inclusive. Um, I work with a lot of gay people in my in my industry and I love them. I mean, I, I have some really great friends. and So it's not about that diversity, if you will. But I think that one kind of throws us off just a little bit, because, again, I know I know the truth <laughs> from a paperwork standpoint. Um, had I not seen the paperwork, I wouldn't have known otherwise, to be very honest with you. I would not have known. Um, Samantha has been Samantha for a long time, evidently. Um, but nonetheless, that's, that's, I'm just being real. Like I said, it was was a a little bit of a leap for me, but I would call it a growth experience.
3: Yeah, it it is. And it just points out to me, the the notion, something else that we, as I think HR professionals can help our folks with is we have to get comfortable with discomfort. Yes. Because it's so true. It's, 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 and I saw this great, um, article about change and it's, it's not that we're resistant to change we're resistant to being uncomfortable
0: that's exactly because right change makes
3: us uncomfortable
0: so we yeah have to well and, with that. yeah and as hr people right a lot of times we equate our our job or our remit to to being the the folks that help other people feel comfortable right, right? yeah so fee accepting that you know, we're going to find ourselves in situations where we're going to we're going to mess it up and we're going to feel uncomfortable um, means they are, too. And that kind of goes against what our our credo is as HR people, you know. Right. And so it's, brings, it's just letting that go. It's
3: letting that go. And Ruby's bringing up a really great point that it's one of the techniques for a debiasing yourself. And that is you need to be exposed to people who are different from you. And in fact, if we can create these environments, and this is actually a strategy that, that um, I'm a, also a project management professional that we talk about in project management is as a project manager, you want to put people with different experiences together. Yeah. Because it's out of that experience of working together that the biases go away. Yeah. And you build bonds and you build the ability to work with people who are different.
0: As the father of two theater kids, I gotta tell you, they look at the world in an entirely different way than I do, right? Because they 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 work with a wide variety of, of people and backgrounds and approaches and orientations, and they just think about the world in a different place. They're not uncomfortable in that space.
3: And in fact, uh, the the World Economic Forum did a study, and you know, they're they're putting the the statistics that. By 2025, uh, 70 percent of the leadership in corporations will be millennials. And God bless them. And millennials (laughs) uh, have a different view of diversity than us older.
0: That's old farts, is what you said earlier, James. The
3: old farts. (laughs) I use that that term. Um, And you got even the Gen Yers who are, and I think we, I don't remember if it was here or. Maybe it was another session, but um, they're expecting, they're demanding diversity. Oh, yeah. hundred
0: percent. Right? Uh, they will if,
3: leave. They will leave if there isn't diversity. And uh, we've now got law firms and other folks who are in the supply chain who are saying, we will only work with organizations who have a diversity, equity, and inclusion plan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this ain't your father's Oldsmobile, as they used to say. Absolutely. <laughs> Guys, I know we're coming up on top of the hour here. Any other questions for James before we thank him for his time and this amazing conversation? Ruby, you can say it out loud.
5: Thank you, James. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, I learned so much. I wrote down, I took so many notes and I think about the work that we do and, and we teach leaders and um, that's our job. Right. And so this is such powerful work that you do. So thank you for that.
3: Well, my pleasure. And thank you for all the work that you all are doing. You're you're all in there fighting the fighting the good fight with your leadership teams. And yeah. so any, way anyway, I can help with that. Um, I'm. That's why I'm here.
0: I appreciate that. So whether it's, the fact that we learned there are over 400 biases that everybody has, that there are nine ways to debias them yourselves from those, there are different levels in this organizational performance hierarchy. Uh, just so many, so many tangible takeaways for me today. Thank you so much, James. Big ups for James, everybody. All right. James, you're welcome to stick around. We're going to do our our funny things, our good feel story, and our silly, silly cocktail, and then we're going to get everybody out of here to dinner time. So with that, funny thing, number one, this made me laugh because this is my life, four stages of a day off. One, I will do so much stuff. (laughs) Two, later, I'll do lots of stuff. Three, eventually, I'll do some stuff. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And because many of us, uh, in this group are public speakers. If you're one of those public speakers that say, good morning. Oh, come on. We can do better than that. Good morning. (laughs) I automatically do not like you from that moment on. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we talked about, about fertility benefits last week. So this one made me laugh. Male birth control is free, and it's called holding a fish in your profile photo.
4: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whoops. A, it can't be Whoops. a certain age to, to get that
0: one. <laughs> Life is a parade of absurdities and pain. And then we die alone in filth. So yes, little girl, I shall buy a box of thin mints. <laughs> Uh, this, this one made me laugh, but you do have to be of a certain vintage to get this joke. It says, I'm a bitch, I'm a lover, I'm a cat churning butter. Ruby knows it. <laughs> from, from the 1993 Meredith Brooks album that nobody has but me and Ruby, that was for you. Ruby. Thank
2: you.
0: And, and my favorite slightly blue funny thing today. Oh, sorry for the unsolicited deck pick that was for someone else. That is a sexy deck. (laughs) Oh, too funny. All right. Today's a good feel story. This is a Memorial day story. And you know, He's gonna get you.
2: On this Memorial Day, we should never forget the reason behind this national holiday. CBS's Steve Hartman previews what has become an annual tradition, taps across America. Here's tonight's On the Road.
1: Monday, at precisely three o'clock your local time, a call will sound. And it will sound everywhere. It will echo past the fissures and fractures of our torn country and ask Americans to set aside their differences and unite, if only for these 24 notes. Musicians, get ready for the third annual nationwide performance of TAPS. We originally started TAPS Across America to move focus away from the hamburgers and hot dogs and back to the real purpose of Memorial Day. To honor and by the thousands musicians have answered our call 86 year old Paul Freiberg of surprise Arizona will be playing for a second year
5: because
2: I love our country so actually there was no way I could say no
1: the frisbee brothers of Newcastle Delaware will be back again too a lot of men in our family have served in the army our great-grandfather our grandfather
3: and our father
1: and eagle scout ricky lazaro is returning but he lives near uvalde texas so he'll be playing with a new purpose this year it's deeply saddened me sir playing taps
2: is is the least i can do
1: the reasons they play are as varied as the landscapes on which they stand some performers are heard by hundreds while others like Lori Williams of Moriarty, New Mexico, play for no audience at all, at least none apparent. I don't think it matters where you play because those who need to hear it, hear it. So you're playing for those above? Absolutely. And that's the audience, our omnipresent past, who we honor with this coast to coast concert. But of course, it's also for the living who this week especially may need this 24-note reminder that there are still some things we all stand for and one thing that will forever bind us, our shared grief. Steve Hartman, CBS News, On The Road.
0: Steve Hartman gets you every time.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Every time. All right, today's semi-quarantine cocktail is called Which Witch? Witch this is a riff on the witch's heart. And this is in the spirit of our conversation today. So you're gonna need a little bit of apple brandy or vodka and then 329 years, two jiggers of homemade blackberry shimmery liquor. There's a recipe for that if anybody wants it. Um, An eighth grade civics class at North Andover Middle School in Massachusetts took up this cause. You're gonna need a little bit of grenadine And uh, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., the last accused and unpardoned witch, is clear. Took 329 years to clear a, quote, witch's name. Going to need a little dry ice and some time to think about that because we are struggling with it today. We heard it in our conversation We heard James make mention to 1964 and the challenges there and the more complex challenges that we face here in 2022. Guys, as always, uh, I am super grateful for each and every one of you. You make my life worth being here. You make my Wednesdays my favorite days. Thanks again to James. Thanks to all of you. And we will see everybody next week. Thanks so much. Have a good night, everybody.
2: Thank you, everyone. Thank you, James.
0: Night, everyone
2: thank you i just wanted to listen to the walkout music
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today if you had a good time and learned a thing or two at today's happy hour please share it with your friends if you want to join our tribe head on over to skyteam.cloud forward slash tcb or email us at info at That's S-K-Y-E team.com. Thanks again, and remember, you've always got friends at The Corporate Bartender.